Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. O God, your one and only Son came into the world to destroy the works of the devil and to make us children of God and heirs of eternal life. Grant that having this hope, we may purify ourselves as he is pure, that when he comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like him in his eternal and glorious kingdom, where he lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. I'm not particularly proud to admit this, but when I was in college, uh, we used to prank call televangelists. The 1-800-PROSPERITY-GOSPEL numbers, that's what we did. And then one evening, we called, we called to prank one of the lines, and, and we turned up some information that su- both surprised us and saddened us. Apparently, there was this book called Miracle or Miracle. I can't remember. Anyway. So we called, and we were like, can we get a miracle? And she's like, oh, you mean the book? And we're like, no, can we get a miracle over the phone? And she's like, well, I don't think I can do that. And we're like, well, aren't you a Christian? You know, we, got, we played along or whatever. And so finally we got to a point where we were like, well, can you just pray for us then? And she's like, well, I can refer you to our prayer line. I was like, okay, well, just, uh, you know, just transfer us over to your prayer line. And she said, no, we can't transfer you, but we can give you the number and you can call back. And she proceeded to give us a number where you, when you punch it in, you have to pay. You have to pay to pray. That was unbelievable. They were going to charge us for it. By the way, our church does not charge for prayer. You can call that number on the back of our prayer, uh, on our folder. It says 573-569-9797. You can call that number, and it'll likely be me that picks up the phone, or you can leave a message, and I'll try and call you back, or you can leave a message with a prayer request and know that I'm praying for you. We won't charge you at all. You can do it for free. Sadly, this is not the only instance of false teachers fleecing the flock. I read a story about a pastor from Zimbabwe who had convinced his followers that his holy pens could help students pass their exams. And the more that you paid for one, the better your grades would be. 
I've heard others who sell water from the Jordan River, small jars filled with various oils, faith healing products, pieces of cloth, and prayer rugs. I got one of those one time in the mail. It, was just, it wasn't actually a rug. It was just printed on a piece of paper. And it said that if I took my wallet and wrapped it up in the prayer rug, that God would bless me financially. I left it in there for three days, and you know what happened? I got in trouble because I didn't have my, <laughs> my wallet with me. Nothing, nothing happened. They claim that because they are holy, that the items that they give you are holy and will bless you both physically and financially. And truthfully, it's all a fraud. These con men deceive the despairing by telling them something that they want to hear. Do this super easy thing and you can have whatever it is that your wildest dreams can imagine. It's a great message. I can see why it pulls people in because we want to be in charge of our own life. And if all it costs is just a little bit of something to get everything I ever wanted, why wouldn't I do that? People eat up this message, hook, line, and sinker, but... They fall prey to the messengers who are motivated by greed. They think that if they put their money in the cosmic vending machine that they call God and push the right buttons, that He'll give them whatever it is that they want. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 says, For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. Our passage today reveals that some of the scribes were doing this very thing. Not all of the scribes, but enough that Jesus wants to address the issue. They were putting on a holy exterior, but their hearts were in the wrong place. And then this passage also shows us someone who put their hope in the right place, their trust in the right place, in God. And so we're going to take a look at these people and find out how we too can put our hope and trust in the right place and in the right person. Well, it takes Matthew 39 verses to explain what Mark summarizes in three. Jesus tells this large listening crowd, beware, right? That's what he says. Beware, beware of the scribes, the teachers of the law. Why should they beware? Well, Jesus is going to give them six reasons or six red flags to be on the lookout for around these guys who are all for show. First, these guys like to be recognized. They wanted to be recognized. Uh, Verse 38 says they go around in long robes. And this phrase refers to this long, distinctive white linen robe, which wouldn't just go down to, say, your ankle, It went all the way down to the ground and would sweep behind you as you walked, showing how distinguished you were. These aren't the kind of robes that you wear when you're in a hurry. They're they're ones that you wear when you want to parade so that people can see you. They're not ones that you can work in. They're ones that you are noticed in. And it's likely that they also wore, because they were trying to be obedient to Numbers chapter 1538, blue tassels at the edge of their robes. And they were to wear these tassels to remind them that they were the people of God. And so when they would see them, they'd be reminded that they're the people of God, that they were supposed to act like the people of God. It was a visible reminder of that. And it's possible 
that these legal experts, in an attempt to look more holy than the rest, wore tassels that were much larger than normal to draw attention to themselves. People would go, oh yeah, I'm wearing my tassel, but look at it. Look at the size of those tassels. He must be really holy. Really holy. These people weren't looking out for the needs of other people. They wanted people to look at them. Bling for attention. It's not a new thing. Happens in the church today still, and it happened then in the first century. The second red flag that he gives is they expected acknowledgement for their status. They wanted greetings in the marketplace, verse 38 tells us. When scribes would walk in the streets, when the scribes and rabbis walked down the streets, they wanted people to respect their self-appointed prestige. People were expected to rise with respect as they walked through the markets. Part, that's part of the reason why they wore the robes they wore, so that people would recognize who they are, because they were required by the oral tradition to stand in their presence. And so as they walked through the streets, people would rise in honor of them. And they would call out to them with names of deep respect. Rabbi, which means my great one. Master, and even Father. The only people that were exempt from standing and doing this were tradesmen who were in the middle of doing their work. So if you're in the middle of swinging a hammer, then you didn't have to stop. But everybody else did. And that's how they expected to be greeted. And being called by these titles fed into their self-centeredness. Third, they insisted that they receive special attention. Because of their rank and authority, verse 39 tells us that they would want the best seats in the synagogue. They wanted no back seat at all. No back seats for them. Clearly not Baptist, right? They didn't know the, the real best seats are in the back. But they wanted the, they wanted the seats that were the seats of honor. They were, after all, the unquestioned intellectual masters of Scripture. They would be viewed as the professional biblical interpreters and commentators of their day. At the front of the synagogue, there was a chest where they would keep the sacred scrolls of Scripture. There was a chest there, and in front of that chest, there was a bench. And that bench was the bench of honor where where special guests and distinguished people would sit, the important people. And since they believed that they were more important and more advanced than everyone else, they wanted that seat on the stage, the place where they could be seen, where they could be admired. It was from those seats that they would look down on the commoners in the congregation. Everyone was looking up to them both literally and metaphorically. By the way, that's the reason I sit down here on the floor. Because I'm a commoner. And I'm just here to worship Jesus with you. Fourth, since they wanted the best seats in the synagogue, they also expected the places of honor at the banquets. When important men in Jerusalem would have feasts, they would consider it a privilege and an honor to have a distinguished rabbi or a distinguished scribe in, the, in their presence, in their attendance, so they'd invite all these honorable people to their homes, to their feasts, so that whoever showed up, they could see how great they were because they were able to get that guy to come to their feast. And at the feasts, 
order of honor was strictly enforced. And here's how it worked. You had the host, and then the highest place of honor was on his right side, directly to his right, the seat directly to his right. The second place of honor was a seat directly to his left. And it went on like that, right, left, right, left, all the way around the table. And so you could tell who was the most honored at the feast by the seat in which they were sitting. You may remember that Jesus had a different status in mind for his followers. He said to his disciples in Mark 9:35, "If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all." Well, that's the exact opposite of what these scribes are wanting. They want to be first. They want to be noticed. They want to be recognized. They want the place of honor. By the way, John and James get in a little trouble over this issue. They're arguing with Jesus. They ask him, can we sit at your right and left when you come into your kingdom? And, and their mother even gets involved and says, hey, can you let my boys sit at your right and left when it's time? And Jesus goes, you don't, you don't know what you're asking. He's, he says, it's not mine to give, but the Father. But guess where Jesus is seated today? Eleven times in the New Testament, it directly says he's seated at the right hand of God, the place of highest honor. And we're supposed to honor Jesus over everything because he holds that position of honor. The religious leaders, though, they liked and wanted this special treatment, this recognition. They wanted the best seats in the house. Now, there's this old story about a pastor, and this pastor had overheard some of his ushers talking one day. And one usher said to the other usher, you know, this church is filled with nothing but good, kind Christian people until you sit someone else in their pew. That's how the scribes and Pharisees saw it. They wanted the seats of honor. They wanted the seats of honor. And no one else could sit there. A fifth warning is that they devour widows' houses. Verse 40. Not only did they love this outward show and empty glory of fake religious observance, which is the sin of pride, they also loved money, which is a sin of covetousness and of greed. They took advantage of the most vulnerable in their society. Like televangelists today, they preyed on the weak and exploiting, and they exploited the generosity of others for their own benefit. You see, these scribes, they knew the law. And in the law, in Exodus, and in Psalms, and several other places, it says that they were supposed to care for the widows. And it seems like the widows have a special place in God's heart. He has a special concern for them. But instead of caring for them, they robbed them, taking even the money that they needed to live on, and it didn't even seem to phase their conscience one bit. Now the scribes, they weren't allowed to be paid for being scribes. So they had to take on other jobs as well, which might be the reason why Paul was also a tent maker. But they could suggest to people that they were scribing for that if they wanted to be very nice to their scribe, if they wanted to, if they wanted to show love to their rabbi, that they could give him a gift. And if they gave him a gift, that God would bless them because of it. After all, they were scribes, and the scribes, would, they'd pray for you. Sounds like what we hear and see today, doesn't it? Some charlatans have paid cash 
for their $70 million private jets funded by their followers. Give a gift to me and God will bless you. Is there empty promise? The prophets condemned people who took advantage of widows. You know, the scribes, they would have to write the wills and the, and the things, and they would do one of two things. Either they'd sneak themselves into it, or they would flatter the widows to a point where the widows would want to add them into it. But they were not loving God, and they were not loving others. They were looking out only for themselves. And they did it all under the guise, under the covering of long prayers. And that's the sixth warning in verse 40. They cover up their praying on widows by praying for widows. And that works way better on paper because praying P-R-E-Y-I-N-G like a hawk does, you know, like that. And then praying P-R-A-Y like this, right? They're praying on widows by praying for widows. The private prayer closets of these men were likely covered with thick layers of dust. But in public, they would spout off eloquent prayers with just the right words to sound spiritual and to, and to gain an audience with those around them. Jesus said that they were empty, that they were hypocrites, that they were like whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. I'll say a long prayer for you. I'll remember you in my prayers if you give me a gift, said the scribes who were trying to scam. It's better to pray, in my opinion, it's better to pray a few fumbling words from a humble heart than some marvelous prayer from a proud heart. And it's precisely because they pray that their condemnation will be harsher. In verse 40, they used their prayers to justify their behavior. But it was all for show, Mark tells us. In Luke chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus warns, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. These men were were entrusted with the very words of God, the very commands of God to help people come close to Him, but they were using those very things as a cover to scam them, to take advantage of them, to devour their homes. And that's not literally devouring their homes, right, by the way? This is a metaphor. He's saying the more that we know, the greater our responsibility will be. They knew what was right, and they did not do it. Thus, they receive a harsher judgment. It appears that there will be degrees of reward in heaven just as there are degrees of punishment in hell. And that's what James, the half-brother of Jesus, must have had in mind when he wrote in chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of us should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. Jesus calls us to beware of those who are all for show. And so Jesus gives this warning, this public warning and rebuke against the hypocritical scribes who are exploiting widows. And He moves, beginning in verse 41, to a private lesson based on the example of a totally devoted widow. And while the heart 
of the scribes was all for show, we'll see that the heart of the widow was all for God. The scene shifts, but only just a little bit. Jesus moves from where he has been standing and teaching in the temple complex to sitting on a bench across from the temple treasury. At this treasury, there would have been 13 uh, trumpet-shaped chests, each of them marked with a different charitable cause for the temple. There was one for, that was labeled New Shekel Dues because every year you had to pay the temple tax, one shekel. And so if you came that year to pay, you pay your, your New Shekel Dues. And then the next one was marked Old Shekel Dues. And if you had, hadn't been to the temple in a couple of years, you could catch up on your payments, Right? And then they would have some for bird offerings and, and whole offerings and wood offerings and frankincense. There was a one marked gold for the mercy seat. And on six of them, free will offerings. This was to help support the work of the temple. To help pay the cost of what it cost to do all the things that it did. And every coin that dropped into the horn-shaped boxes would make a clanging noise on the way down. And so Jesus is watching, he's people watching, like maybe many of you like to do, you like to people watch. And Jesus sees two kinds of people. The first group were the rich in verse 41. They love to put in large sums of money because the more that they gave, the more noise would be made. And the more noise that you made, the more attention that you would receive. And so they would take their fistful of coins and they'd chuck them in there and they'd rattle around until they got to the bottom. They gave a lot because they had a lot. And everyone would have been watching with amazement, impressed by the volume of the sound their gifts were making as well as how long their rattle rolled. What did Jesus think about their gifts? Not much, to be honest with you. We'll find that out a little bit more here in just a second. As he keeps watching, Jesus notices a second kind of person, a widow in verse 42. And it's very likely that no one else noticed this widow except for Jesus. She was probably trying to just slip in and slip out unnoticed. She was the least of the least of the society of that day. And her gift was likely the least of the least that would be given that day. And just a quick lesson here. This is not the main point of this passage at all, but it is an important point that I want to mention. Jesus sees everyone. No matter how unimportant you think you might be, no matter how how little you think of yourself or how other people treat you or ignore you, God sees you. He knows you. He knows what you're going through. And He loves you. You are important to Jesus. Now these rich, they made big noises and big shows in their giving. And the widow comes to the donation box. It doesn't say it in the text, but I like to, I have an imagination. So in my imagination, she kisses the coins and tosses them in. And these coins that she gave were the smallest copper coins or bronze coins of the time. If you had two of them, it equaled 
one sixty-fourth of a Roman denarius, and a denarius was a day's wage for a typical worker. Now, I did math ahead of time, but that doesn't mean that it's right. (laughs) But if I did my math correctly, based on minimum wage in our state as of 2021, two of these coins equal $1.28 before tax. So I don't know what that means after tax, but you're looking at a coin that maybe is worth 50 cents. Maybe. So she had a a dollar. A dollar. That's not much, is it? A dollar's not much. You couldn't really, I mean, you can't really buy much with that today. She might as well have given nothing at all. But 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says, Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And we find out that Jesus knew something about this widow that no one else knew. She gave all she had. Even though it was a small amount in the eyes of men, it was a large amount in the eyes of God. And after seeing this, Jesus calls his disciples into a huddle. He sees this woman give her coins. He says, hey guys, get over here, get over here. And he gets his arms wrapped around him and he goes, he goes, truly I tell you, if you have King James, it's verily, verily, I tell you. And it's, it, that's just a, it's a, the word that we use. It's a Greek word, amen. And it comes from the Hebrew word, amen. And it simply means faithful or true or I believe. And it's said as an affirmation to something that has been said. And we might say something now like, that's right. When the pastor says something that we like to hear. That's right. Some people do still say, Amen. And that, damn, thank you. It's a good example. Appreciate that. And that and that alone is what Amen means, by the way. And that's what Jesus says here Amen. Guys, get in here. Amen. This is true. Believe me. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. Than all the others. Jesus saw the gifts, he saw the hearts of the givers. He saw the act, but He also saw the motives. Some gave because others were watching, but others gave even when no one was watching. Jesus doesn't praise the rich in this passage. He doesn't condemn them either, by the way. It's not bad to give big gifts to God if that's what you want to do, if that's what God's called you to do. But He praises this poor widow Because she gave more than all of them. And before Peter could put his foot in his mouth about how small her gift was, because we know that Peter was thinking it, right? Because that's how Peter is. Jesus answers the question that's in all of their minds. How can two cents be worth more than $200? And Jesus explains that she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You see, these rich folks, they gave something that they would never miss. They would never miss it, while this poor widow gave extravagantly what she couldn't afford to give. The rich were giving their loose change, what they had left over after they'd bought their groceries and paid their bills and their entertainment expenses were covered and their vacation funds were padded and their car was all gassed up and their insurance was paid. 
They may have given large amounts, but they weren't going without any of the luxuries of life. But this lady, it says, she gave everything, all she had to live on. And the word here implies that that this is all the financial means that she had to sustain life. The rich were digging into their riches, and without putting anything in their lives in jeopardy, made generous, noisy contributions for people to admire. It's like they had a huge pile of coins and they just went and grabbed a fistful of them because that was enough to make it sound nice, but they still had a giant pile here. But this woman, who could have said, you know what, I've got two coins, I'll give one, and I'll keep the other, and maybe I can buy a scrap of bread that they're just going to throw out anyway. But she doesn't do that, does she? She puts both of them in. The amount was not large, but the sacrifice was huge. And God took those two little coins and turned them into the gold of heaven, making them more valuable than any rich man had ever given. The issue here is not the amount that she gave, but the motivation behind her giving. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Warren Wiersbe catches this important truth well in in what he wrote. He said, It is not the portion, but the proportion that is important. The rich gave out of their abundance, but the poor widow gave all she had. For, For the rich, their gifts were small, a small contribution. But for the widow, her gift was a true sacrifice a consecration of her whole life. Have you heard the parable or the fable about the chicken and the pig? Have you heard this one? There's a chicken, and he goes to the pig, and he says to the pig, hey, let's go into business together. And the pig goes, well, what would you have in mind? What kind of business should we do? And the chicken says to the pig, well, I was thinking, I was thinking real hard that we ought to start a, a bacon and eggs breakfast shack. And the pig just stares at the chicken thinking, how stupid do you think I am? You see, for the chicken, an egg is just a contribution. But for the pig, the bacon is a complete sacrifice. It will cost the pig his very life. And that's what Jesus, that's the point that Jesus is making here. She kept back nothing for herself. She didn't just make a contribution like the others. She made a sacrifice. She had complete trust in God that He would supply all of her needs. And in contrast to the scribes who exploited poor widows, we have this poor widow who freely sacrifices all she has in love and devotion to God. And this is the point of the passage, of the message, where the pastor starts to conclude and say, oh, what should we take away from this? And they'll say, they'll say oh, yes, you should give sacrificially and recklessly and generously. And then they'll point to the tenth, you know, the tithe, the tenth as a good measure for where to begin. But I don't think that's the point of this passage at all, to be honest with you. Pastors have used it that way. I think they've misused the passage. Because I don't think that can be the passage because this woman didn't give a tenth. She gave everything. 
That's different. I think that if our question is how much should we give, then we're asking the wrong question. I think that the lesson here is that we must give everything to God. Sacrifice our whole life to Him. I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about our life. Charles Spurgeon said, Christ measures what we give by what we have left. God doesn't want a tenth of your life. He doesn't want you to look good on the outside like the scribes, but be hollow on the inside. He doesn't want us to just devote part of our life to Him. Instead, like the widow, we are to give God everything we have. Everything we do, everything that we are, we lay before God. Surrendering our life to God, just like this widow has done, because our entire life belongs to Him. God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He, he can take care of what needs to be taken care of. What He needs is your life. He needs you to be obedient. He needs you to sacrifice everything to Him. This woman was living out what Jesus had already taught. She loved God with all of her heart, with all of her soul, with all of her mind, and with all of her strength. This lesson is about trust. It's about faith and devotion to God. And I could have preached the warning against the scribes today and then the, the widow's gift next Sunday, and I could have preached a whole sermon on each one of those. But I think they're meant to be taught together because it shows the contrast between these hollow, fake, false professing believers and this woman who shows true and total devotion to God. Someone who was trying to use God to pad their own life rather than giving up the comforts of this life to serve God. So where do we fit into this story? Are we like the scribes? Or are we like the widow? The scribes looked good on the outside. They said the right words. They knew the, they knew the right passages. They, they were impressive. But they were spiritually dead on the inside. So there's no doubt in my mind that when I ask the question, where do we fit in the story? Are we like the scribes or the widow? Every one of us is going, I want to be like the widow. We want to be like the widow, don't we? Or at least we want people to think that we're like the widow. Ananias and Sapphira did that. didn't work out too well for him in the end. She threw her whole life into the care of God when she threw her last two coins into the chest. Have you thrown your whole life into the hands of God, into His care? God judges our hearts. He judges our hearts. He judges our motives. We can fool people. People are easy to fool. We can pull the wool over their eyes almost every day of the week, but we can't fool God. Not even a little bit. What does your heart look like? Some questions that might be helpful. When the Scripture is being read or a prayer is being offered... Are you thinking about lunch or the Lord? Do you get antsy when church service goes over by a few minutes on a Sunday morning? 
Do you find yourself wishing that more people would have noticed that special thing that you did for the church? Do you ever look around and think, there are some real hypocrites in this church. I, I hope they're listening to the pastor and that message he preached today. The truth is that we're all hypocrites. And we're all hypocrites more often than we would like to confess. Jesus said that these hypocrites would receive a harsher judgment. And we deserve that judgment. In our hypocrisy, we have not given everything to God. We are more like the scribes than we are comfortable admitting. But mercifully and thankfully, someone has thrown their whole life in for us. Just like this poor widow offered her whole life at the offering box, Jesus would offer his whole life at the cross. Jesus was never a hypocrite. He never did anything that deserved judgment or punishment. Yet Jesus endured the greatest punishment and greatest judgment on the cross. And He made the payment that is necessary for the sins of this world. When Jesus suffered and died on the cross for us, He suffered and offered His life as a perfect sacrifice which satisfies the justice of God. And because Jesus lived this perfect life free of hypocrisy and from every other sin, when they buried Him in the ground, the grave could not hold Him. The stone could not keep Him. And He rose from the dead on the third day. And through His sacrificial death and glorious resurrection, He offers us forgiveness of all of our sins, if we will repent and believe. The hymn writer got it right. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jim Elliott, one of the missionaries that was killed in his service to God, on a beach in, in uh, South America. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We hang on to things in this world way too tight. This message isn't about, it's not about money. We care about money, to be honest with you. If God wants to give us money, if we need money for something, He'll sell a couple of the cows on the thousand hills that He owns and He'll take care of it for us. This message is about giving your life to Christ. That's what we call people to do, isn't it? We say, give your life to Jesus, all of your life. Give your heart to Him. Come to the altar and lay your life down before Him. And that's what this is about. He uses money because that hits at our heart and that's fine, we get that. But he's saying all that she had is all that we are and that's supposed to be the offering that we bring to the Lord. Ourselves first. And then when he has our heart, everything else follows. Everything else follows. Jesus gave his all and so should we. 
Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com.